And we are in our study on Bible lists and just kind of doing something different over these last few weeks, which is going down through um, Harold Wilmington's lists that he compiled in his book. And I thought as I was going through my own personal library, uh, which I have an electronic library and I've got printed books as well, but uh, I was looking at that and I thought, oh, some of these would be really good to study because they're just compiled lists of a various topic. And so tonight we're going to look at 12 areas to be tested at the judgment seat of Christ. And this is probably an interest, hopefully an interesting topic, but it is something that I, over the years people have asked me about. And they say, what's the difference between the great white judgment throne and the judgment seat of Christ? And what will Christians experience at that? And um, the, the short answer is, I don't know all of what will be taking place at the judgment seat of Christ, but the judgment seat that is referred to is the Bema seat and it is a place where rewards were handed out by judges in like the Olympics and those kind of things it was also a place where decisions were made um, but they weren't judgments for like for instance the great white throne judgment which is separate that is for sin and for sinners that is not for the believer and there's there's two different judgments when we look at that uh, but where we get that, and this isn't in Harold Wilmington's list, is from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And here, this is one portion of it, Paul writes to the church and he says, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw... Each one's work will become clear for the day, and that is a reference to the day of the judgment seat of Christ, will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire." Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And for God, oops, I jumped ahead. Sorry, I was supposed to end there. Uh, do, yeah, he says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And that part right there is sort of the basis of, of you know, where Paul teaches that there is a day where believers um, will be, their, their works, in essence, will be tested. And be tested in accordance to this by fire. I think that fire is a reference to just the the holy eyes of God that see everything and know everything. He is that identified as that in um, Book of Revelation, the one who has eyes of fire, right? That you know, and you think of that omniscient God who knows everything and will test everything out, and by His very glorious being that He is. And I don't know exactly what that'll look like or be, but I do expect someday to be at the judgment seat of Christ and hopefully receive reward for the things that I have done and the things that others, you know, you have done as well. Those that will be standing there, not that I would receive that, but rewards will be handled out as we live for him. And the things that we endure and uh, the things that we basically did in this walk, the Christian walk, and those, all those things will be tested uh, by the Lord in that day. Again, that's the basis of that or, or the text that I want to start with. <clears throat> and then I want to go to the list. And 
there are areas to be tested at the judgment seat of Christ. And again, this is for believers. And so each and every one of these should be something that we pay attention to if you're a Christian. And number one is how we treat other believers. The Lord takes note of how we treat others, and especially those in the household of faith. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, it says, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. So there, that verse is uh, pretty clear, that God doesn't forget your labor of love. And sometimes that's the reward you have, is it's not something that maybe down here people will even see, that it's a labor of love. But it is something that he takes note and he will reward, and especially towards the saints. And, and I wanted to add one little thing about that. There are a lot of ministries that deal with sometimes um, uh, ministries to sinners, and that's good, you know, evangelism type of ministries or things that deal with people in their sin, and we try to help them and all that things. But it's the emphasis in Scripture often is to instead help the people of faith. Well, I shouldn't say instead, but also. But first and foremost, it should be the household of faith that we begin in that kind of ministry of helps in doing that. We see that in the early church when they chose deacons, and they were to be men who were spiritual men, men who could go and serve others, and were able to do that. And the others were were people of the household of faith. That was their primary task and calling in doing that. Along that same line, Matthew chapter 10, verse 41, He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple Assuredly, I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. And again, Jesus is teaching on rewards. That even the smallest of tasks and most menial things, like giving a cup of cold water to a little one, you know, I think of children in that sense, but it also could be a lesser one, you know, someone who you don't really care, you normally wouldn't care for, and society maybe has cast out. And just giving somebody a little cup of cold water. And metaphorically, uh, building on that, I would say there's a lot of different ways we can give a cup of cold water, right? And helping somebody have a better day and showing the light of Christ. And there's all kinds of different ways, right? Um, he, that was how we treat others. Secondly, how we exercise our authority over others. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 The writer here says, Obey those who rule over you, and be submissive. For they watch out for your souls, as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. And there again, we have this idea that there are those, there's a structure of authority, even in the household of faith. And those that care for you in that whole realm well, they have to also give account, not only for themselves, but for you. That scares me when I think about that, because um, sometimes I, I, I worry just about myself, and then I realize, no, Lord, you've called me to be a pastor, and I have to also care for the lives of others. And uh, I'm not omniscient, by the way, so I don't always know all the needs you have and all the other areas that I should be 
helping you in. But I will say this, that it is something the Lord takes account. And I'm glad that um, hopefully we take that seriously together. And that we can give someday a joyous report, not a grievous report, when the Lord takes that into mind. James 3.1, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. In the case there, James is addressing a problem early on in the church where people, everybody wanted to be the teacher. Everybody wanted to be in the front, right? And first and foremost, he reminds them, um, hold on, because there's a stricter judgment for those who are teachers. I think that's why it's very, very important that uh, as we come to the Word of God and dispense the Word of God through teaching and preaching and everything, that it is done very carefully. It is done as if the message that you're dealing with, and it is indeed the Word of God, and it, as that message goes forth, it is like God speaking, not because the pastor or preacher or teacher is God, not at all, but because of the Word of God that's there. That's why central to the Christian message and the, and the teaching in Christian whatever, in, in, in the church, should be centered on the word of God. Outside of that, God's subject to all kinds of good errors and all kinds of problems. <clears throat> but there is a stricter ju- judgment for uh, those that teach. Thirdly, how we employ our God-given abilities. And I do believe that the scriptures teach that each and every one of us have a gift, at least one, that he is given. If you're a Christian, a, a believer, he's the Holy Spirit has come to, to be in you and seal you onto the day of redemption. But one of the other ministries the Holy Spirit does in you is, is equipping you with a gift. And there are many, many gifts that are mentioned in Scripture. Some are, are more public gifts and some are more private gifts. First um, Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, Paul writes, There are diversity of gifts, but the same Spirit. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, and I don't know why I have that in there, to be honest with you. That doesn't fit. But 1 Timothy, where am I? Yeah, this is the one I want. I think it's because I I was looking for a verse 11 there, and I didn't put it in. Um, Verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 12 says, But one... And the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. And again, that's uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 11. And basically in that statement, it's summed up that everybody, each one, has a gift. Keep that in mind. All right. First, or 2 Timothy 1, 6 says, and I'm trying to see where I've gone with that. I don't know. Anyways, I'm sorry about this. I, I put stuff out here. and I. Yeah, I'm looking. What have I done here? I'm gonna, I must not have put the right reference in on my notes up there. But 2 Timothy 1.6 says, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying of hands. And uh, laying of my hands. And that was what Paul told Timothy. And then 1 Peter 4.10 and it says, each, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. 
And I'm just making sure. If I miss that back there, guys, there's some. I'm, if I jumped ahead of my notes here on the ones on the wall, do you, what what is that? Okay, I must have combined those. Is what I did somehow. Oh well, I'll go back to that. But somehow, I, when I was adding these into the computer, I, I skipped over the references. <laughs> Sorry about that. And I should have double-checked it, but I got talking. I think that's what happened, um, those things. So I apologize for that. I try to make things flow well for you. <clears throat> and then I read First Peter 4.10. And the next one is how we use our money. And I have, um, I don't know if I've, I've put everything in order with that one, but I'm just going to read what I have here. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, it says, On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay, us, uh, let, each one of you lay aside something, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And Paul was teaching on giving, and he teaches the church on giving there in Corinthians. And then when you come to 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7, it says, but this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And that's the teaching of the same thing, that our monies and our our material things that we give to the Lord are also used. And there's an idea of accounting before God as a steward in the household of God. First um, Timothy, and this is the one I, I had added here. Hopefully I'm back on track. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in certain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. And look at the next thing. Storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come. Is that reference to retirement years? No, that, that is reference to heaven. That is in reference to the eternal state. That what we do here with our material things that the Lord has blessed us with actually invests somewhere else in eternity. And, you know, I thought about that. I thought in, in investment terms, of course, they teach you um, in money investments that um, if you invest money and then you have a certain amount of time, it pays a bigger dividend, right? The more years you have money invested, hopefully it pays more dividend, right? Now, in that same principle, when you're investing for all eternity, how much more a blessing it is forever. And it's not money that we'll have there in heaven. There won't be any need of money anymore. But the reward that comes with it is far greater. Here we try to cling so often to our monies and try to stretch every dollar. And sometimes you have to. And that's not, I'm not saying being haphazard with that. I thank the Lord for being in a church that is very generous. And, and the people here are very generous uh, in that. And it's something that I just am very thankful for. And uh, I think it speaks of where our hearts are when we're like that. Anyways, that's the idea of storing up for themselves a good foundation. And then the next one is how we spend our time. So we have, number one, how we treat others. Number two, how we exercise authority over others. Number three, how we employ our God-given abilities. Number four is our money. And number five, how we spend our time. 
there's only so much time in this life. You might be, you know, someone who has a lot of years. John was talking this morning about having a funeral yesterday for uh, a lady who was 99 years old. It was Mrs. Kelly. And you think about that, 99 years old. But yet, it's just a succession of days. Days from conception all the way to death. And our life is but a vapor, the Bible teaches, isn't it? And what we do in this life determines so much more in eternity. Psalm 90 verse 12 says, So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. That ought to be something that we do in our waking moments, in the, in the morning, getting up, and our very first thoughts ought to be consumed with the Lord and reminded that I've got another day to serve you, God. Another day. I think it's extremely important. And there ought to be a time where we get to know him. Because you see, there's coming a time when you aren't going to be waking up in this world. <laughs> You'll be leaving this world and entering into the glorious state and what we do here and now in learning of him and, and our heart for him and all that counts in heaven as a reward. Ephesians chapter 5. And this is again the stewardship issue. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Remember Mr. Dowie when we took Ephesians class with him, he used this verse as an illustration or he used an illustration for this verse. And he talked about it growing up in Ireland and in Ireland, um, most of the, at least in Belfast, all the little houses and all that had little walls around them, sort of as a security thing. And on the tops of the walls, a lot of times, and I saw this also like when we were in Eastern Europe, they would take the, when they built the walls and they put the last layer of mortar, they would take broken glass and embed it in the mortar on top. And it was a deterrent because if you're somebody who wants to get over the wall, you also have to get through that broken glass. And uh, it, it, it's a good deterrent, really, to keep people out. And he said there was an old tomcat that he would watch just about every day who would jump up on that wall, and he would, as a cat kin, walk through that glass and not cut his feet because he, he walked circumspectly. And that old cat would just do that. And this world is like that. The world that we live in is a, in the terms of sin and sin's ways is a dangerous world. And Paul says, walk circumspectly, not as fools. A fool would jump up on that, on that wall and just walk on the broken glass, right? A fool jumps into this world headlong and is willing to just take what comes and they'll get run over. Don't be that way, but as a wise Christian. And we have the book that guides us in every way and tells us how we can walk and what to watch out for, and the pitfalls that are before us. We have this great book, the Bible. And why? Next verse, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Uh, I've said this before, but at River of Life Bible Camp, that um, in the dining hall, uh, there's on a big piece of wood, there's a, a burned-in verse there, etched in wood, and it's this word, this verse right here. It says, redeeming the time because the days are evil. And... I often uh, would go in there sometimes when I was a director at that camp years ago. I would go in there in the morning before the staff got up and everything, and I'd sit down, and i think, wow, we're another day into it. What's it going to be? Because as 
Roger and Donna know you, when you're directing a camp, you're up first and you're out back to bed last usually. That's how the way your day goes. And sometimes the, the in-between isn't very much. And I kept thinking, it's just another day. It's another day. And Lord, what are you going to do today in our midst? In that verse, redeeming the time. That's buying back the time. And as we live for the Lord, it's worth it. And then I have Colossians chapter 4, verse 5. Paul writes there, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. That's That's not Christians, that's outside the household of faith. Redeeming the time. So we are to be a witness in the world also. So how I walk today is, is something that actually um, matters. It matters to those that are not in the household of faith. Maybe the only Christian they ever see. And you might be walking by them today in your walk. 1 Peter 1, 17. And I have a couple more verses added to this, but here... He says, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And Peter's not talking about just being exiled in this world. He's referring to the state of a wandering pilgrim and stranger. That's how the first Peter opens up. That we're pilgrims and strangers in this world. And literally, the people he's writing to were indeed exiled and scattered. But if you read through the letter, and we studied this you know, not long ago, that it's so much deeper than that. We indeed, in this world, are always going to be strangers and pilgrims. We're just passing through. And he says, to do so, we're to conduct yourselves with fear, that's reverence, throughout the time of your exile. That's the here. Knowing... That you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. You, you came out of sin. If you're one of his, you're not in that world anymore. You've been bought and brought into a family. And he says, knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways. Think of all the futile ways you lived before you were a Christian. And we got it from our forefathers. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Even silver and gold, which will last a lot longer than you will, they're perishable. But not the things that are done for Christ. Another one, point six, how much we suffer for Jesus. And that too brings about reward. The Bible teaches a lot on that. Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. Jesus said, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Key word there is falsely for my sake. Sometimes, unfortunately, having a bad testimony, people can revile and persecute you and it's for the reasons of having a bad testimony. But here Christ says, if you're living righteous, you're going to have persecution. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Great. I, I think sometimes I'm quick to pray, and I, I don't think it's wrong, but because we're told to pray to deliver us from evil. But I'm quick to say, Lord, 
give me a, a good day in my mind when I connect that thought, a good day, um, you know, a good life. You know, we think of blessing as being, you know, uh, fat and comfortable in a nice easy chair or a soft mattress. And I want that kind of life, Lord. Well, there really isn't much reward in that except for in this life. It's honestly, it's honestly through the suffering and the deep sufferings that people have the opportunity for the greatest of rewards. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And he goes on in Mark chapter 10. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. And here Jesus does teach that there's blessing now. When you became a Christian, I, I remember I went from when I there was this time. I mean, I got saved when I was in high school, my last month of high school, and I got saved. And uh, the guys and they were good friends, close friends. Uh, most of them just said, "I don't want anything to do with you now," and that hurt. I can remember that. And you guys, some of you had that same thing. It just hurt. And I remember going to a friend and I was so like excited about being a Christian. I remember sharing Christ with him and he said, Duh, somebody's brainwashed you. And he just walked out, you know. And, and he didn't really, for years and years and years, we never had another conversation. Just only in recent years have we ever gotten back together and we had a great time. He's a little more serious now in his 50s. But I look back and I think there was that stripping away. But how much more I received in the family of God. Brothers and sisters all over the world and a Christian wife and a big family. You know, we often say that, a big family, and that's what it is. Sometimes you hear somebody say, they run into somebody and they say, wow, it's a small world. No, for a Christian, it's a big family. And I have been all over the world and run into people that... uh, the Lord just gave you those divine appointments in the household of God. Oh, thank you, Lord, for that. He promises that. But also in the age to come. In the age to come, it matters. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. There's that balance again. Suffering which at the moment is just like here in our minds, but in the weight of glory, it's here. It's down here. Glory, suffering, they go together. In Second Corinthians, for our light affliction, I almost find that so, um, it's such a soft way of putting it when Paul writes our light affliction. And the apostle Paul, if he was able to be here tonight he's not he's in heaven and i'm not wanting him back here or anything like that but if if he could give testimony first person standing here and tell you all the horror stories in his life of what since he became a christian the amount of suffering that man went through it would you'd be hard pressed to find others probably around you in your circle that suffered like the apostle he calls it his light affliction which is but for a moment that's all it is 
is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Wow. And then 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of, the, of Christ's sufferings that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Peter's writing that, and in the backdrop, by the way, Peter was the disciple that knew how his life would end. Remember, Jesus in the Gospels tells him, someday they're going to take you where you don't want to go, and they're going to stretch your arms out. He knew he was going to be crucified. And yet he writes this, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. And Peter himself had gone through it. And indeed, that's how Peter died. He was crucified. As tradition says, crucified upside down on a cross, having said to his executioners, I am not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as my Lord. Please crucify me upside down. And then, how we run the race. That's number seven. Peter, Paul here says this, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run but one receives the prize run in such a way that you may obtain it run like you want to win right ah man that's great and again philippians 2:16 holding fast the word of life so that i may rejoice in the day of christ that i have not run in vain or labored in vain in other words hold fast the word of god not only holding it out the word hold fast means Stand firm on it. Be in the Bible. Internalize it. Philippians chapter 3 verse 13. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those which are ahead. Much of our problems are, I could sum up like this for the Christian, is that we keep our minds too much in the past past hurts past suffering past um, blessings that we don't have now those kind of things and paul says just just look ahead just look ahead move ahead i press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of god in christ jesus hebrews 12 1 therefore we also Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, right? The author and finisher of our faith. Again, part of this is that eternal weight of glory that is before us. And and how are you going to run? It matters. Not like most people don't want to show up for the race. Be a Christian that wants to run the race and win. <clears throat> How effectively we control the old nature. That's number eight. First Corinthians 9.25 says, And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. You look at an athlete who is at the top of their game and they didn't get there by just sitting on the couch and eating potato chips. They got there because... They are temperate in all things. In other words, they they do what it takes to be at the top of the game, right? Now, they do it to obtain a perishable crown. 
but we for an imperishable crown. Paul compares that. Like if an athlete at the top of their game is willing to give up some things and be controlled, temperate is the word, then how much more we who are Christians who don't just have the fleshly nature, but rather we have the Spirit of God who is in us and controls us if we let Him. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I, I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. And what Paul is referring to there is the, the, the state in which we live. We live in the flesh. And, and you need to discipline yourself in the flesh to run the spiritual race. Because the flesh will take over in no time. Number nine, how many souls we witness to and win to Christ. That is also taken into account. Proverbs 11.30 The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. Now you might say, I I don't know if I've led anybody to Christ in my life. I, I haven't won somebody. Are you investing in that realm? Are you helping somebody evangelize? I often look back and I think, if we could just peel back the, the knowledge of what God sees throughout all time. You know, and I think of the faithful moms and grandmothers that prayed and prayed and prayed. And then their grandchildren or their great-great-great-grandchildren they never even met were saved. I say that my great-great-grandmother, Inez Cobb, I met her. She was born in 1883. And died in 1982 at age 99, just shy of her 100th birthday. And I sat on her lap when I was just a little baby. And then I remember visiting her a few times in my younger years. And she was a dear soul that, that was very faithful to her church. Knew the Bible, taught my mom the Bible as a little girl. Later, my mom didn't become a believer until after I did. But Inez Cobb had a lot of influence on her generation and she was a Sunday school teacher in her church Um, I've said this before I was overseas in Ireland talking to um, uh, the Schleens and Joanne Schleen and Joanne is from Maine and they were ministering in Ireland and I said Joanne how did you come to become a Christian and she said oh there was a lady that used to take us you know and bring us to church and I thought, well, that's neat, okay, you know. And she goes, yeah, this, this woman named Inez Cobb, she used to pick us up and bring them. That was back in the 1950s. Bring them to church. And I said, that's my great-great-grandmother. Lord, thank you for faithful people behind us some generations ago. And I often wondered, did my salvation in part come from the faithful Obviously, God is God, and he's sovereign in all this, but he wants us to pray. He wants us to, to be here now, concerned for the lost, that they might be saved. And if, if we're not concerned in those areas, I'll tell you what, it, it, it says here, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. What does your family tree spiritually look like? And what will it look like if we'll let him? That's more important than anything else. Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. 
How many of us want to have a name that lasts, you know? I mean, that's why we etch our names in the cemetery on granite, all right? Well, I hate to tell you that probably in a few hundred years, they aren't going to figure out who that was. They'll go back there, uh, I think it says uh, Labby, maybe, Ro- Ro- Roger. I mean, that's what we do when we go to old monuments, right? Just a few hundred years. But you know what's more important? And I'm saying that because yours is already down there. It's already losing years, okay? Just so you know. More importantly is if we lead people in the paths of righteousness, he says, like the stars forever and ever. Lord, there's a blessing for those that win souls or are part of that, that process of winning souls. 1 Thessalonians 2.19 For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? It is not, or is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? Someday he's coming for his church. Someday we're going to be raptured out of here or when we depart this life in death we will be with him and we will see people around us. I think more so there than here. I mean, here I forget names and I Sometimes forget what people are, who they are, they change, I change, you know, things like that. But in heaven, we'll have the full use of our minds again. Won't we all have to forget names and wonder where that person was and who they are? And in their presence, we will rejoice. Oh, you made it? (laughs) I made it? We're here and forever? I don't know what that's going to look like. I'm probably just not doing any justice, even with my imagination. For you are our glory and joy. What really makes your engine rev, right? There's a lot of things here on earth that kind of get us going. But here Paul says, you are our glory and joy. Wow. I got to hurry up. 2 Timothy 2.19 Finally there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And this is number 11. How much the doctrine of the rapture means to us. That's Wilmington's point. Um, In other words, the return of Christ for his own. And this says there is a crown of righteousness laid up for people who love his appearing. If you were to say to people, Roger was talking to me, I'm picking on you tonight, but he was talking tonight and he said something, he says um, something about asking questions to people. And I've thought about that. Maybe you need to ask me that. Are you, how are you doing in this area? Are you expecting his return? Pastor Dick was 39 years ago. How much more so now? Are we that much closer to the rapture. Do, do you look forward to that? Do you wake up in the morning going, perhaps today? Perhaps today. I know sometimes as this world crowds in on us and the sufferings of this world, we say that more. But in the good times, maybe we say, no, not yet. I remember Bible school. Guys would say, I want the rapture to happen, but I want to get married first. Well, this marriage, the marriage of the Lord, is far better even than any earthly marriage that we could have. One points to the other, doesn't it? Be diligent to come to me quickly, Paul says. 
Why? For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica, Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Paul said, all these people have left me. One for the reason of just loving the world. He says, only Luke is with me. Get Mark, bring him with you, for he is useful to me in the ministry. Paul's writing this letter, the last one he would write, and he's writing it there to Timothy, and, and he compares the, the joys and glories that await, but also those that, that don't see that, and they walk, walk away. And then lastly, how faithful we are to the Word of God. Are you faithful to the Word of God? And to the flock of God? Acts chapter 20, verse 26 Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Paul, Paul said that. Uh, I can't say that. And I don't mean it in a, like, I just, Paul was able to say I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Yet, remember he was the guy that, that killed an innocent man named Stephen. Or he was consenting unto the, the death of Stephen. When we first introduced to Saul of Tarsus, he's killing people. And having them bound up and put in prison. How can he say, I'm innocent of all Because it was under the blood, it was forgiven. And that from that moment on, he becomes this, instead of this radical persecutor, he becomes this radical Christian who's so driven to reach people. And when Paul would go into cities and towns and places, people heard all around. Not only from him, but those that he reached. So that he could say these things. Why? For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. He spent three years with the Ephesians. He spent a year and a half with the Corinthians. And in that time he preached. Sometimes day and night teaching. And and, and had to work on the side as well. And do all those things. And he understood those things. And I do believe there is reward and we will be judged accordingly to how we live this life in the expectation of his return, but more even in the idea of being faithful to our mission, the word of God and the flock of God. And then he says this, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. And I like this. This is a, a, one of those verses that's a Trinity verse. Because it says, to shepherd the flock, right? Among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. God purchased it with his blood. By the way, we know Jesus is the one who shed blood. But here the scriptures declare, as Paul declares, he's God. It was ultimately God who saves us. Second uh, Timothy again, chapter 4. <clears throat> I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. And there, as Paul sort of gets ready to conclude his message to Timothy. And he says, and this is the most important thing, preach the word. Preach it. By the way, it's in season and out of season. 
it probably was a lot easier. Yeah, I can't say always easy. Every generation's been difficult, but you know, it was easier at a time to preach the word when society kind of respected that. It's a little harder when society doesn't. At least I'm talking about American society. We're still to preach it. And then First Peter chapter five verse two: Shepherd the flock of God which is among you. Serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Nor as being lords over those who entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. In other words, it's worth it. It's worth it if we're faithful. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for this.